Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that gets deep into the psyche of those who have achieved the extraordinary, from sports people to business people to social change innovators, cutting to the chase to unlock the secrets of their success. Brought to you by Running Hot Coaching, the platform that helps you achieve all your health and fitness goals. Well, hi everybody, it's Lisa Tamady here at Pushing the Limits and welcome to the show. If you're a new listener, it's great to have you stop by and if you're a returning listener, thanks for coming in again and today you're in for a treat where we've got a very special guest on today, uh, Dr. Paul Wood, who's going to tell us a little bit of his life story and it's not your average life story. Um, it started out rather badly but has turned out rather brilliantly and he's got a lot of insights and a lot of life experience and he's a doctor as well and has that uh, um, uh, studied in psychology, etc. So he's going to share a little bit of his journey, way that he lives his life now, all the learnings that he's had. So welcome to the show, Dr. Paul Wood. Pleasure to be here, Lisa. Oh, fantastic. So um, can you start perhaps uh, telling us, you know, whereabouts you came from and your, a little bit about your background, your childhood, that type of thing? Okay. So I was one of four boys. And we all grew up with the expectation that we'd join the infantry at 18 and then hope to get into the special forces if we were living the dream. So that's sort of what we grew up expecting to do. Uh, I grew up in a not an uncommon New Zealand environment where, as a man, I got some pretty clear messages around what emotions I thought I was supposed to feel and which ones I wasn't. And I got some pretty clear messages that I wasn't supposed to feel any emotions I'd associate with weakness or vulnerability. And for me growing up, I always thought the measure of the man was his capacity for violence and bravery. And I remember from my earliest sort of ages at primary school, always sort of measuring myself on, you know, was I the toughest in my year? How did I fare in terms of fighting older kids, that sort of stuff? And fighting was something which was certainly, uh, amongst my brothers anyway, seen as something that was a good measure of yourself. Uh, in that environment as well, uh, my dad was uh, an important figure, of course. Both my parents were together and happily married. And my dad's very much a man of his generation. So he's, you know, he's a quiet guy and he's not big on uh, sort of modern approaches to parenting, like I'm proud of you and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. a winner and I love you <laughs> and unsolicited cuddles and all of that sort of stuff. Right, good stuff Interestingly yeah. enough, like a lot of people, he's, you know, he's really different as a granddad. But as a father, I certainly uh, don't have many recollections of any of that sort of stuff. In fact, still to this day, if you want to show him you love him, you know, he'd appreciate you chop some firewood or something for him. You know, that's the way it was hard. <laughs> yep, I get it. <laughs> and, you know, he grew up as a boy during well, during the Blitz in World War Two in London and, you know, lived in bomb shelters, survived on rations, so pretty hard sort of an upbringing. And in that environment for me growing up, I suppose the one source of emotional softness and support for me was my mum, you know, my poor mum. She was such a... A gentle woman and she used to wonder aloud how she had four such violent boys all the time <laughs> and uh, as I grew up and particularly as I hit my sort of teenage years and I started experiencing all of these emotions I didn't think I was supposed to experience as a man uh, I you know went further and further off the rails and sort of sought solace in drug use to uh, not have to deal with the reality of those emotions because I thought there was something wrong with me, something broken when I found myself experiencing fear or, yeah. or sadness or anything like that. And I started to experience those emotions 
in part because my mum got sick. Wow, yeah. And so I associated as well with a group of people in my area who were um, not pro-social people. And one of the things we know from all the research that's come out of the uh, Dunedin study, you know, the best, most gold standard longitudinal piece of research in the world is that a crucial influence on teenage behaviour is your peer group. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of teenagers end up engaging in antisocial behaviour, you know, be it a bit of shopping or underage drinking or, you know, driving illegally, that sort of stuff. But what sort of determines what type of behaviour you display as a teenager is what's normal for your peer group. And for my peer group, it was some pretty antisocial stuff. Yep. You know, it was, you know, stabbing people, committing burglaries, that sort of stuff there was more normal. And some of that was just, you know, um, intergenerational criminal backgrounds or multi-generational, I should say. But yeah, so growing up in that environment, that's the sort of stuff I did. And uh, I was always someone who was seeking other people's approval. You know, I wanted to be liked by people, and unfortunately, the people whose approval I sought at that point in my life were not people who you know, uh, led me to make good decisions or influenced me to make good decisions. And by the time I was 18, I was well and truly off the rails. I was addicted to drugs. I was just engaged in a criminal lifestyle to support my drug habit. Uh, interestingly enough, I did do my army enlistment at that point. I did the initial component of that. Mm -hmm. And I held off going to basic training. I was holding off until uh, it would have been 1996 so that I could try and get uh, a, a, a position to go with the infantry unit to Bosnia. Yep. And I'd received some information from an elder brother who was in the army at that time that that was likely to happen in that intake. So I was holding off. But at that point, my mum died. This oh. was at the, the Christmas before that. Oh. And... I wasn't coping with anything in my life well at that point, and I made the decision to catch up with a drug dealer. And what I didn't know about him was that he had uh, a, a, a history of uh, a, an aggressive interest in adolescent boys mm. and sex acts. Mm -hmm. And what he didn't know at that point when he caught up with me was that I was someone who had spent my whole life fighting. Mm. It was in an emotionally really volatile space. Yeah, and I'd actually had my own yeah, and I'd actually had my own experience of sexual abuse when I was younger as well, mm. and that made me hyper vigilant to any kind of homosexual advance or anything Absolutely. like that. And you know what? Neither of us realised when we made our choices that day was where they would lead us, Lisa. And before that day was out, he would be dead, and I would be starting what would be a, a life sentence of imprisonment for murder. Yeah. And I, I just want to be clear at this point, you know, for yourself and for your listeners, that I didn't go to prison and go to prison for an extended period because I was a victim of the justice system. I went to prison for uh, an extended period and I was convicted of murder because I chose to go significantly beyond what was required of me in terms of self-defense in that situation. Mm -hmm. So the last thing I'd want people to assume is that, again, okay. you know, I was yeah. some nice guy or you know, that, that there was anything unjust about what happened in my situation. You know, I made all the choices that put me into that environment and then I made all the choices that ended his life and I did not need to make those. It took me a few years to take ownership of that because yeah. it's always easier to blame everyone and everything else when things go wrong mm -hmm. in your life. Mm -hmm. It's always easier to feel like you're the victim in situations. Always, yep. And, you know, a big irony for me is it wasn't until I was imprisoned and I received a minimum non-parole period of 10 years when I was 18, so I was trying to do 10 to life. 
and that minimum non-parole period reflected the fact that it wasn't uh, a premeditated killing or anything like that that I was convicted of. Yeah. Uh, but it was still an extended period of time, and it was a period of time that I, I didn't have the context for as an 18-year-old. Yeah. As a 40-year-old, I can look at that and I can understand what 10 years looks like. As an 18-year-old, that seemed forever. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so, you know, I just, uh, in those early years, just carried on doing what I was doing. Yeah, I carried on using drugs to escape the reality Inside of my situation. Inside the prison? So absolutely. How do, you, absolutely. how do they get drugs in there? Oh, where there's a will, there's a way, and well, there's lots of will in prison. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, think about it like this. The vast majority of people who end up in prison have an alcohol or drug issue, so yeah. you've got a really captive market there. There's a lot of people who end up in prison who are drug dealers and suppliers, so they've got a ready-made market for themselves there. Those people don't tend to stop dealing drugs when they come to prison. They just shift their market to the prison environment. Crazy. And most prisons as well are set up with a variety of security levels. So in most prisons, you'll, you'll have different areas which are higher or lower security, and the lower security areas will tend to have people who go out and do work in the community, you know, scrub cutting, those sorts of yep. things. Mm -hmm. And so they're always in a position to be able to have drug drops done to bring drugs back in. Uh, also as well, you'll have people bringing drugs through visits. There's other ways in which people smuggle it in. And also as well, it's a fairly low-paid, low-skilled job in a prison officer. So you'll have the occasional prison officer who gets corrupted and who will be paid or blackmailed to bring stuff in, and that's not an uncommon scenario. Uh, you know, I've got to say they've certainly cracked down on it a lot since I first uh, went into prison. Yep, which is good. The attitude very much when I first went into prison was, you know, a, a stoned prison's a happy prison, is a quiet prison. That was yep. the sort of attitude Shut of a lot up. of guards. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Whereas it wasn't one sort of supported higher up in the prison administration. It's certainly something that shifted over the years that I was in prison. And I certainly know they take a very dim view of it now and do a lot to try and stamp it out within yeah. that environment. But so I think one of the big ironies for me is it wasn't actually until I was in prison, until I was locked up, that I was able to recognise that I'd been held back and imprisoned for a long time before I was physically incarcerated. I'd been held back in a prison by my thoughts and beliefs about the world, about wow. who I thought I was supposed to be as a man, how I measured myself, you know, the limitations I placed upon my life and what I thought was possible for me. Those were all things that had held me back and had, in effect, um, been a mental prison before I was physically locked up. And this is something also, that we all we all have, don't we? Uh, this is not just you. You know, we've all got some sort of construct in our head that comes from wherever our childhoods, our experiences. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think of it like this. You know, like I've got young kids myself at the moment, and it's the most meaningful thing I've ever done being a parent. And you look at them. You know, I look at our toddler and our little bubba, and they're just so uncontaminated by life mm. and by you know trying to make sense of who it is they think they're supposed to be. At this point, they're just so authentic and joyous. Whereas what happens in an attempt to make sense of our experiences and understand our place in the world, you know, understand or make sense of what the expectations of others are on us in order to get their love and attention to be worthy, you know, we develop these self-defeating and disordered beliefs as we grow up. Mm. And a lot of the time, those messages aren't intended messages from our parents or from our siblings or from those immediately around us. But it's about how we interpret our experience of the world and the messages that we get in respect to that. 
And these are things that end up being really formative in respect of how we then look to engage with the world as adults. I mean, you know, the analogy I like is it's kind of like as we grow up, we start to map the terrain of our childhoods. You know, we, we map what are the certain things that lay in these areas and how can we navigate this terrain. But then what we do is we still use that map when we're an adult and the terrain's changed. Mm. So we're still using the maps of our childhood. It's no longer relevant. Yeah, absolutely. So it was one of the key lessons that I learned in you know having the opportunity to reflect on the stuff in prison and then starting to study psychology is that actually the importance of stepping back and you know reevaluating that map of our childhood relative to the terrain of where we are now and where we want to get to as adults. Yes. Yep. And so for me, that was quite a journey. You know, when I went to prison, I was really an ignorant person. I was someone who didn't see myself as smart or intelligent at all. I'd never felt any connection with school education. You know, I excelled at lunchtime. You know, that was my <laughs> specialty point at school. How ironic you're now, Doctor. Yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> um, but, you know, I really, I, I really didn't feel any connection with it. And because I always thought that I was going to join the infantry, I always saw education as something you did to get a job and... You know, the biggest sort of thought I had around education is, oh, do I want to do sixth form, as it was called when I was young, in order to try and get into offices to cadet school? And I decided that, no, I was quite happy to go in as a grunt and try to be a non-commissioned officer at some point. So I wasn't worried about it. Uh, Whereas I had an experience in prison which really changed my perception on what education was about. In a, in a really positive way. So basically, I uh, ended up in Parimarimu, which is New Zealand's toughest maximum security prison. And I always knew I'd end up there. And the reason I knew I'd end up there is because of that ongoing drug use yep. when I got to prison, yep. which, as I mentioned, wasn't something supported by the prison administration, even though it was an effective strategy for my, me not dealing with the reality of my situation in those Absolutely. years. Yep. And so when I turned 20, I got moved to maximum security and when I arrived up there I went to a particularly notorious and violent gang block and it was interesting actually because when I had been in just standard prison uh, when I first went to jail for those first couple of years you know I still maintained this idea of myself as thinking that I wanted to be a tough guy and that that's what I was about and that's that's what my identity was. Mm. But when I ended up in maximum security, and particularly in this really, really violent gang block, I came across people that made me really sort of reevaluate that identity for myself. I came across people who just had a different level of capacity for violence and ruthlessness that I didn't relate to. And, you know, looking back on it, I think a key thing is that look, I grew up with parents who weren't perfect, like all of us, you know, no one's parents are. But I always knew that I was loved. You know, Dad wasn't big on any of that modern sort of parenting stuff, but I knew that he loved me. I knew that my mum loved me. Yeah. And on that basis, you know, I, I think I had a level of c- compassion and empathy for other people that I just didn't see in those in maximum security who had grown up without the experience of positive love. Yeah. You know, there were people out there who had just growing up experiencing nothing but abuse in their wow. life and those were people who had just had a different capacity for um, meanness and violence than than someone who had had some kind of positive experience you know it's, it's something where it's really important to keep in mind that those who hurt are people who have been hurt mm. 
And the greater that hurt has been and the earlier it started, the greater that people have that capacity to hurt others. You know, make no mistake, it's not an excuse and it certainly isn't the case with everyone who's had a rough childhood. But with those, you know, who are the major predators yeah. in society, they without have, doubt, have that's what that you will background. see. Yeah. Absolutely. So if you've got no role models as a, as a child to be able to build a, a positive construct or a compassion or an empathy for other people, sort of all of that sort of thing, you can can it retrospectively be learned? I mean, you, you're proof that it can be, but like you say, you did have that good inner yeah. background, that yeah, basis. Absolutely. And look, I think a key thing for me is I went off the rails, Lisa, but yep. that implies that there were rails laid down in the first place. Yeah, yep. And so I think, you know, my, myself, I had that advantage of where I did have, you know, uh, really supportive, uh, positive people in my life earlier on. Whereas for people who have never had any rails laid down, they haven't gone off the rails. They have just followed the path that was set down. Yeah. You know, the sort of the kindergarten to prison path that's often referred to. And and that's because they just have a really different experience of the world. For example, you know, my upbringing, it definitely would have been and was seen as a really sort of shameful thing to go to prison. It wasn't yeah. seen as something that was acceptable or positive. You know, I certainly grew up and as a teenager didn't have negative views about it because, you know, I lived a criminal lifestyle and I and I, I glamorized prison like a lot of people do. But I definitely knew that my parents, for example, would be heartbroken by me going to prison. Yeah. Whereas lots of people I came across in prison, it's just par for the course. It's just a rite of passage. It's not something to be embarrassed about. It's just what you do when you reach a certain age. Wow. It's just... And when, you know, and when that's your expectation of life, and when that's how you grow up, I mean, you know, what chance do you have, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what um, actually it, happened yeah. in there that, because, I mean, as, as a young man, it's very hard to take a step back and to look, I mean, I know my my little journey through life, I've taken to now really to be able to see some of the things that I've done or why I did them or to, to analyze them and you know I still don't feel like I've grown up yeah. completely you know how does a, a young 20 year old who's been in jail has not much experience in the world has lost his mum how do you get out of that victim mentality how do you actually take a step back what was that incrementally, process? Incrementally. Incrementally. Yeah. That's, and that's, the, that's, that's a key theme through life, right? Yeah, absolutely. Any great change, yeah. any great achievement is incremental. Yes. It's through small daily steps that take you a long way over time. We, we like to imagine you have like a Damascian experience, right? You mm. see the light and mm. it just fundamentally shifts you and changes you. But I just don't think that's the reality of, of great change and growth or great achievement. I actually think that it's about those small things, those small steps that over over time take you a long way. And I also think, look, none of us are sitting at the top of our mountain it, when it comes to our own personal growth and development as human beings. You know, it's a it's an exercise in progress, not perfection. Yeah. And, and when it comes to being that best version of yourself, whatever that looks like for each of us, that's about getting better, not being good. That's about more consistently and deliberately showing up as that person, but never having the expectation that you'll do that without that you will always be able to. I think that's the journey of growth and maturity is, is more consistently and deliberately being that person. But it's yeah. again, it's it's an ongoing lifelong exercise. So for me, when I was in Parry when I was 20, 
I had that unsettling experience of recognizing that actually perhaps this identity I had for myself isn't the real me. You know, these people around me who are who it's are what I think me. I want to aspire yeah. to, actually that's not me, that's not what I want in my life. And, you know, it also was a place where I had the experience of being a victim of, of real violence. Oh. And I think that shifted my, ex- my experience too and my perspective. You know, it's a rough place. Yeah. I remember getting attacked in the yard by a gang member with a weight bar on one occasion. I was with another guy there, another neutral non-gang member, and we got attacked by this one guy. And he swung the bar at us as we were walking up and down the yard. And the guy who was closer to him was the guy I was walking with. And he put up his arm to defend it, and it broke his arm and deflected off his arm rather than hitting him in the head. He then took a swing at me, and I just managed to move my head back far enough for it to just scrape in front of my face, just miss me. We then retreated a bit further down down the yard, uh, and this guy stayed up in the area he had been, which was out of sight of the guards and that sort of stuff. Yep. And I said to the guy I was with who had just had his arm broken, I said, look, it's just one guy, we can take him out. You know, I had had fights with people with weapons before in my life. It wasn't something that was out of my experience. And I knew that, you know, with two of us there, we could definitely take this gang member out. But, you know, as a 20-year-old, I was green. I didn't know what the reality of the place was. And the sobering thing that the guy who was with me said, and he had been there for eight years at that point, he said, it's not him I'm worried about. It's the rest of the gang who are now tooling up to stab us when we come back in the block. Wow. And I tell you what, it's, I just I was like, oh, you know. It's another it very, level of... <laughs> it really yeah. is. So we went back into the block and... What you do in that situation, that environment, is you, you know, you like uh, tape magazines to your torso, and so if you're stabbed, really? you know, it won't penetrate your organs. Hopefully, and we were doing that, preparing in the cell, getting ready, getting ready for this attack, and very fortunately for us, one of the associates of of one of the guys we used to hang out with had seen this attack happen from another block, and he told the gang members from that gang and his block that if anything happened to us now he would take them out yeah so he in effect held them hostage wow. so that nothing would happen to us and so the attack didn't come yep and you but that was survived. only because of of you know like the uh, protection that was afforded from this relationship with this other guy and is that and, how people get cooked into the gang culture like you know when you uh, how do you be neutral when you're in a situation like that where you need protection really yeah it's really tough and it's it's even tougher if you're um, Māori or Polynesian, yeah. particularly if you're Māori, though, you know, New Zealand prisons are disproportionately Māori. Yeah. It's over 50% of them are Māori, whereas it's less than 15% of our population. Amazing, yeah. And the reality is, is the first thing that happens if you're a young Māori who goes into prison is the gangs come up and they go, right, okay, you know, you're yeah. with us or you're going to suffer the consequences of not being. Yeah. Whereas if you're so you've a... you've got no choice. Uh, no, there's very little choice there and it's terrible. Yeah. Whereas a guy like myself, normally what will happen is the gangs are more interested in trying to um, um, steal stuff off me or beat me up or that sort of stuff. But pretty quickly, if you establish that actually you will fight to stand up for yourself, then you become less of a target there. It really is law of the jungle. It's crazy. And, you know, people tend to go for the weakest uh, prey that they can. Absolutely. And I'm yep. fortunate that I'm not, a, I'm not a small man. 
you know, I'm not physically small. And as soon as I got to prison, I started exercising extensively. Yep. And that's a real survival strategy in that kind of environment. Absolutely. You want to be as strong and as fit as possible so that you can sustain um, you know what what's required of you in, in terms of combat situation. Yeah, it's military in another way, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, isn't it? So, yeah, so that that's um. It's just, know, that's it is very akin time. to being in a war zone, then, isn't it? Is like you know constantly watching your watching your back and and fear for your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it certainly was for me in, in Parry, and this. You know, I think it's very very comparable to being in in, in the army and. In, Again, in a combat zone in many respects in that there's lots of boredom and then really intense fear and, <laughs> and, right. and violence and that type of stuff, yeah. But, you know, it was, uh, yeah, uh, Paris is a, a really tough place, no question about it. But uh, after that attack as well, I ended up in this situation where the guy who had had his arm broken wanted to get retribution against the guy who had attacked him. And this was a terrible situation for me because I didn't really want to be involved in this, yet all of the prison norms and culture, you know, the idea of what was right according to prison values and ideas was that we should get back at this guy. Yeah. And so here I was, it's kind of like it's it's the ultimate Hamlet situation, right? So you know the story of Hamlet, so he knows that his uncle was killed, his father, and he feels that he should get vengeance with him, but he doesn't really want to. Yep. And so it's this conflict between, you know, do I do what I think I'm supposed to do or do I choose what's easier but what's not right and all of these sorts of things. And that's what it was like for me in this situation in prison, you know. Do I do I help this guy out, attack, and, and really seriously hurt, if not kill this guy who attacked us? which according to the prison code is the right thing to do, but I don't feel that that's the right thing to do and I don't want to do that. And is that a function of me actually, you know, having a values conflict or is that a function of me demonstrating cowardice uh, and, and not, you know, so it's like this inner uh, conflict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've got no, once again, no moral sort of framework to, to build this on, this decision. Oh, no, no, I didn't. Um, but I must say, it's interesting. Sometimes you can get really positive advice from really unusual places in life. And I actually had a conversation with a, a, a gang member from one of the other predominant gangs at this time. And he was a guy I had known when I was on remand. And he actually said to me something which just really, really took a lot of the pressure from me. He said to me, you know, you're not a gang member. You don't have a gang behind you. You can't take these guys on. You know, n no one's going to think any less of you if you just let this go. You know, you don't need to do anything. And I'll tell you what, that was just, wow. it, was yeah, it was such a, a, a gracious and kind, I suppose, perspective for him to share with me because it really did let me feel that I, I could take this pressure off and I didn't and you need weren't, to do that. you were being a coward and you weren't going to be the victim of... Yeah, yeah. And, and fortunately for me, the guy who'd been attacked he was moved out of the block after another little riot that happened there. And that meant that, you know, the main guy who was driving the bit of retribution was gone. Yeah. And that meant that I was off the hook in terms of needing to do something I didn't really feel was, was the right thing to do. But that now left me in the situation of where, you know, the, the sort of the protection which had been afforded to me wasn't as clearly present anymore. So I spent every day just waiting to get attacked by these guys. What and, a horrible uh, you know, way to live. And, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. What an awful way to start in life, you know. 
Yeah, and it's it's funny because you know I remember at like eighteen and at twenty thinking I was a man, whereas you know at forty I sort of look back on a twenty, I look at a twenty year old and I'm like, you're just, you you know, kid, you're just yeah. a kid. Yeah. So no, a tough environment, and yeah, look really tough uh, for my family and particularly my dad, you know, to have me in that kind of situation. Yeah. Uh, you know, something I really only recognise now that I'm a parent myself in terms of how hard it must have been for him. Yep. You know, he used to come and visit me. He visited me nearly every weekend for over 10 years while yeah. I was in prison. What a man. That's, what that's, a man. I'll yeah. tell you what, you know, you just think of how much value you place on your days off, giving up one half of those to come into an environment where you're treated with suspicion. Yes. You're treated like you've done something wrong. And then you have to see someone you love, one of your kids. In this in a, in a terrible world. environment. Yeah. And I think of those early years, particularly when I'd be on non-contact booth visits through the glass because I was maximum security. And I'd sometimes, you know, have, have, you know, black eyes or that sort of stuff and getting beaten up or getting attacked. And he'd have to come visit me and he'd have to walk away knowing there was nothing he could do nothing. to improve oh. my life and make mistake. I'll tell you what, he may, he, he may not have been big on any of that sort of parenting stuff, but I'll tell you what, if I become even a pale reflection of, that. of the father he was to me in terms of that level of support to my kids, they will be bloody lucky. Yes, yes. He, he sounds like quite a man. To, to do uh, that, that's a huge sacrifice, and to and to stick by you for that entire ten year period yeah. of hell. Um, yeah, amazing. And not only that, but when I decided I wanted to try and do something different with my life, and I decided I wanted to try and and study, you know, he sacrificed and paid out of his pension so that I could study. Not wow. only that, but it, but he he took care of all the logistics. I mean, when I decided I wanted to start studying, that I. I you know, I wanted to give that a go. I spent eight months asking per- permission in the prison system, trying to trying to get somebody to give me permission. But it, no one else was studying at that point, really? at that yeah. sort of level. Yeah, there was no systemic support for that. And so I, I kept getting told I'd have to ask someone else, and then they'd tell me, no, no, you have to ask the person you've just asked. And after eight months, I just said to Dad, look, can you enroll me through Massey? Because I bet you when the study materials arrive, whoever's in the receiving office, We'll get them and go, oh, he must have permission for this. Yes, and they'll get it, let it in. Sure enough, that's what happened. I never actually officially had permission to study. But that was also one of the key sorts of themes and lessons in my experience then and going forward in life is that, you know, you really need to look at what's in your control and what you can do yeah. and not be uh, waiting on external support and better oh, circumstances so to really true. make it happen. So you true. You know, if, <clears throat> if, I, if I had been waiting and going, oh, well, look, I want to change, but the prison system isn't supporting me, you know, I'd still be waiting to this day. Yeah, yeah. But, I, you know, I, I didn't It's wait. finding a way around the obstacles, and your dad found a way Absolutely. for you. Yeah, yeah. You know, what's in my control? What can I do? What? How can I affect change in the situation? And also seeing barriers and obstacles as not yet, yep. not stop and give up, yeah. but find a workaround. Awesome. You know, I love that. So, I love that. So, I, I mean, that, that is, I think it's, you know, people listening out there, that's a really good key thing to take away. I mean, I know that in my life too, where, you, you know, you've come up against obstacles, that isn't a final, it's all over. It's like, well, okay, that didn't work. What else is there to try? How else can I Absolutely. get around this situation? I mean, look, when our circumstances perfect, they're never going to be perfect. Nah, it's always never. about what can I do in my situation right now? What's in my control? How can how can I do something small today that over time will start taking me in the, dis- in the direction I want to go? 
I mean, one of the things you hear in prison all the time, Lisa, is, oh, when I get free, you know, when I get free, everything's going to be so much better. I'm going to live so much better a life. I'm going to have so much, oh, yeah. you know, better, better outcomes. But I didn't wait for some imaginary future when circumstances were better. I focused on what I could do right now, what I could do today. Yeah. And it, that really comes back to that idea that great change and achievement is about the incremental stuff. It's about the small daily disciplines. It's about the small steps that you choose to start taking right now that over time take you that long way. Yes. And that's the thing, you know, like the, the human desire is for some kind of shortcut. The oh. human desire is for some kind of easy fix and easy solution. But life isn't supposed to be easy, and there is no shortcut. There is no quick fix. There's no, it's there's, all I mean, about. This is so, like, I mean, I've been talking to this just today with my mum, who's, uh, the listeners know, who had an aneurysm 20 months ago, and she was written mm. off. And, and I learned very on in that journey that, okay, I've got to take control. I've got to do whatever. I've got to learn whatever. I've got to be there. I've got to push and push and push. And... And, and she said to me exactly that same t- thing today, is that you cannot rely on the authorities, you cannot rely on any systems, you have to get up and you have to do it yourself, whatever you can within your power, find a way, find someone who will help you um, in order to, you, 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 too many people I think go to the doctor and they want a pill because they're sick. You know, we've been working with your, your father-in-law, isn't it, Gary? Yeah. And yeah on indeed. a journey, a wonderful man, and he has helped me with a health journey recently. And, um, you know, I've been told, doctors, you've got to have this surgery, do this. And I was like, no, nah, I'm not doing that. I want to know why. And Gary has step by step, and it's taken us months, and it's taken, mm. you know, but we've gone, nah, we're not taking the easy way out. We're taking the long route, and the long route's paid off, you know. Um, and I think that's a really, really good lesson in life. It's the daily rituals, the little bits that you do. So when you started studying, did the did you have some real like, oh my god, this is what I'm doing moments? You know, like this is where I've been going wrong because you were studying yeah. psychology. I mean, this is yeah, indeed. Look, a key, uh, I suppose, insight for me when I started psychology is all the stuff that I thought made me broken you know, made me different and more damaged than other people was just the normal human experience. <laughs> it's just that I didn't know and couldn't see how other people were hurting in the way I was hurting. You know, all of the negative self-talk, all of the unhelpful beliefs that led me to, you know, not allow myself to be as happy that led to greater stress and expectation and this type of stuff, it's just completely normal. But you just don't see that in other people in the way you're aware of it with yourself. It's the, it's the duck on the water analogy. If you were the duck on the water, you're moving along, you're aware of all the furious activity going on under the surface. Yes. But then you look over at the other ducks and they all just seem to be cruising because <laughs> you don't see under the water with Their the little ducks. legs going for it, yeah. Exactly. And yeah. it's that same comparison. So coming across that stuff in the early days of psychology and recognising, hey, actually. Everyone's got this shit going on. Yeah, no, everyone's, everyone's, you know, the same in this respect was really liberating. And it's the same coming across those ideas that, you know, my emotional experiences were completely normal. That's part of being a human rather than thinking that this was, you know, made me um, unmanly, emasculated me in some way because Uh. I experienced vulnerability. Mm. And, you know, this is one of my real passion points these days is around, you know, the development and the promotion of emotional literacy and emotional intelligence yes. in terms of 
you know, our society, and particularly in terms of young men, of course, being a, being a man, yes. you know, that's a, a key area yeah. for me. Yep. And, you know, these traditional and false and damaging ideas of masculinity, which I think do so much damage to society. Totally. And, of, of course, the same is true for women. They get their own messages. Mm. But, of course, me and in my life, I really relate to that stuff around masculinity and how unhelpful it is. So I do a lot of work in this space these days. Fantastic. But, yep. Look, I think the key thing for me as well in terms of um, education, really being able to turn myself around there is that, you know, when I started studying, I didn't think that I could study at university level. I did a couple of papers through Massey University because they were the only place that offered psychology from a distance. But what I found in that first year is I found that exercising my brain was like exercising my body. If I did it consistently and regularly, it got fitter, it got easier to use. I'd always assumed I was dumb because actually I just never made any kind of no effort. effort. Yep. No, and, and, you know, it's the equivalent of you wouldn't go and try and run a marathon without training <laughs> and then think, well, okay, I just can't do this. Yeah, yeah exactly. You, you would recognize you need to train to get there, and it's the same when it comes to using your brain. You know, I had previously encountered stuff and looked and gone, oh, that's hard. No, I'm obviously not smart, whereas actually it requires effort and it requires consistent use of your brain to actually get to your potential. Yep, learned I mean, helplessness, isn't it? Learned. Absolutely. Mm. So for me, you know, learning that, I could be smarter, that I could use my brain more effectively through exercise and through learning was was a key takeaway. And of course, by the time I, I finished prison, I, I had gone through, I'd done my undergraduate and I'd done my master's degree, um, neither of which had ever been completed in the New Zealand prison system Amazing. before by someone who was high school dropout. And I was two years into my doctorate. And of course, doing a doctorate, you know, before I did one, I used to think, gosh, that means you're so smart. Yeah. Whereas the reality is, is doing a doctorate is the intellectual equivalent of running a marathon. <laughs> and I bet you know lots of people who run marathons who aren't natural athletes, oh, yeah. but who persevere <laughs> and who do the work. Yes. And it's the same with a doctorate. You know, my, my wife would be the first to tell you I'm not that smart a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> she has good insight into this. But, you know, I, I'm committed. Again, it's about those small it's steps. It's about the daily the incremental moves. And the reality is life is way too short, Lisa. You know, the time's going to go yeah. however you spend it. But, you know, don't put off today what you'll look back on and regret not having started in three years from now or three months from now. Oh, that's a good message. You know, yep. That's the key. You know, take that first step. Because I think people look at it something so big and daunting as doing a doctorate or running a marathon or, or, or some massive challenge and go, it's just too big. So how do you break that down in your head and go like, okay, no, it's all about the first step. You know, It's all about yeah. taking this, what I can do today, taking that first step and tomorrow will take care of itself. Yeah, well, look, I think this is a key thing around when it comes to trying to achieve anything important like that. What we often do is we get too quickly into the how. How would we achieve this goal? And we lose sight of the why. But it's the why that's important in terms of our motivation of being able to do the real mahi, being able to do the real work when it comes to that. You know, the old quote is, is you can bear almost any how if you've got a clear sense of why. Oh, love that. And so, mm. you know, the key thing I'd recommend is that you actually identify with you know, what does this goal mean for who you want to be as a human being? So what does this activity mean in terms of how you see yourself and what the best version of yourself looks like? And what would that person do in that situation? 
because I'll tell you what, that's how you actually start taking the steps in terms of going, well, what would a person, like the person I really want to be in life, do in this situation? You know, why is this important to me in terms of the values I have and how I'll look back and measure my life? Because that's the stuff that makes it way easier to do the hard work and to make the start. But also as well, know this yourself because you've achieved some amazing things, is that if your focus and if your sense of worth is really going to be dependent upon achieving that goal, you're going to be disappointed every time mm. because it's not going to give it to you. The goals that are really meaningful are the goals that are about being able to demonstrate and exercise your values as a human being on the journey towards them. Yep. You know, well, the actual achievement of them, the external sort of like successes, yep. you know, that's not really the stuff that's going to give you a sense of well-being and meaning in your life. It's all about the journey. Yeah, it's all absolutely. about the steps you take on the day-to-day -day yeah. basis, not the medal at the end of the marathon. It was the, the million steps you took to get there in the first place and the discipline yeah, that you learned. And Yeah, so it's all of these little lessons that you, you – And so was, was psychology then a really practical form of study for a young man in this situation? Did it give you the insights to control your own emotional, uh, you know, tendencies and violence and, and all that sort of stuff like yeah did you manage to get not all initially. that not initially it took a long no time. but i'll tell you what it did is it gave me a broader perspective on life and it gave me the idea that there was more to life than i had previously encountered and there were other things i could be interested in outside of my previous range of reference and therefore it gave me the idea that I had options to be able to pursue that would eventually lead me to have a level of knowledge and understanding to be able to more effectively manage those things. But the first big switch there is I started to develop a new identity for myself, an identity that actually made me reconsider what I'd previously thought was right or wrong and the way to approach things, an identity that actually led me in this direction away from that previous behavior and away from the previous choices. I mean, remember, when I went into prison, I thought that my response, for example, that led to my offending was the appropriate response. Yes. You know, I thought that extreme anger was an appropriate emotion for a man to experience in circumstances. And, yep. uh, you know, the outlet for that was violence. And those were all good things. Those were appropriate. So, you know, education was what actually gave me the insight that actually perhaps not. Perhaps those weren't the right responses. And without that insight, I would have had no motivation or interest in actually developing the skills to more effectively manage them. Yep. And make no mistake, you know, I'm still a work in progress. As I said at the beginning, you know, we're all still climbing our mountain. Oh, I regularly fail yeah. <laughs> to be the best version of myself, particularly as a husband and as a father, which are the most important areas for me. Yep. But again, you know, I conceptualize this as a journey of progress, not perfection. I conceptualize this as, as a life goal better not being good yeah I think that's beautiful because we do um, I think once you start to get enlightened around who you are and what you are and, and where you're going in life um, it's very easy to lose the sort of you get down on yourself when you're not perfect all the time and you're not doing what you're meant to be doing and you know yeah. and, and as a teacher and as a coach and, and you know uh, you'll probably feel the same as like, ah, I'm not living up to the standards I should be living up to 100% of the time. Um, but that's okay. That's part of the human journey, isn't it? Absolutely. And I've got, got to say, you know, like I, I think I've, I've gotten much better at managing that sort of stuff over the last years because 
because I really do see failure as the greatest opportunity for learning and growth. Yeah. I know from all of my previous experiences that, you know, the biggest growth opportunities I've had are from the biggest failures. And as long as I conceptualize them is the, the, the real stuff, the real insight to enable me to get much better than I would have otherwise, then they're far more manageable and positive than if I see them as some enduring indictment on who I am or how I'm supposed to be. Yeah. Because I certainly grew up as well and had as an adult the idea that I should always give 100% and, you know, to lose was just so, so insufferable at anything, right? Mm. But the reality is, is that actually the right thing to do sometimes is to know when not to give 100% and to know when actually losing is the best thing for you in terms of where you end up. So, you know, that stuff, it's its challenging emotionally, yeah. but the way you think about it and conceptualise it is crucial in terms of what you get from it. I just did a podcast recently on knowing when to quit, and this came about because, mm. you know, I, I too have grown up where you, you know, you push and you push the limits all the time, hence the show title. Uh, you go to the extremes, you, you know, it's all around mental toughness and, and, and uh, all that. That's how I grew up as well. Um, and now to go, hang on, there's something wrong with this picture. There's no balance. There's, yes, achievement, but where was the happiness? Um, yeah. And to find that, that route back to what is okay, you know, when is it okay to go and sit down on the beach for half an hour and just stare at the sea instead of feeling guilty about the fact that you're not studying or you're not learning or you're not doing some crazy thing, you know? Um, and I think that, that that's something that, um, as you get older, I think you start to find, okay, right, we've, we've got all this goal-setting stuff, we've got all this motivational stuff, we've got this incredible focus and strength of character and all of the good things that you meant to have developed. Where am I in this? Where is the balance? Where is the quiet times? Where is the chance to actually you know, live in the now? Um, I think that's a lesson that um, a lot of us have got to learn, me included in, in this um, of living in the present, actual in the moment, not, oh, I've got to be doing this, I've got to be doing the next thing, you know? Do you find that having kids has brought you back to the present more, like instead of just striving for bigger and greater things? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the reasons for that is, is again, you know, it goes back to this idea. We grow up, we develop this map based on our childhoods and this map gives us our expectations of you know how we can navigate the world to feel worthy and to, yeah. to, to really feel worthwhile but I think one of the things that having kids does is it really makes you or gives you the opportunity to step back and go hey what kind of map do I want my kids to develop is it the same that I had you know do I just want that to be the same experience they have or actually do I have some different values and ideas about what's important that I want to communicate to them and this is what I would say is the crucial component here is that, you know, for, for people like yourself who have that just that striving for achievement, and for myself in many respects, you know, I, I'd sort of relate to that. I think actually asking ourselves, you know, how much of that is just this idea that we got as kids and growing up that if we did really well and if we succeeded, then we would be worthy versus what do we actually think the purpose of life is now and what is it we're going to look back and measure ourselves by on our deathbeds and is that the way we're behaving or is that something else? Yeah, we're still not quite in the right track. 
<laughs> yeah. I still, uh, you know, and, and th- these are interesting thoughts around because, you know, okay, you've overcome like a lot of limiting beliefs as you get older, you know, when you <laughs> reach your 40s and, and beyond, um, where you can take that, that time to reflect on that 20-year-old self, that 25-year-old self, that 30-year-old self and go, hey, yeah, we've come a long way. We've developed this wisdom. We've developed these experiences. Where's the whole still? Because there's some big ones there. Um, and finding that, that, that nice balance. I think that the word balance keeps coming up. Uh, it's very hard to be balanced when you're an, when you're an overachiever or when, you've, mm. or when you're someone who's strived your whole life for excellence in everything that you do, whether it was succeeded or not. You still have that mentality to go, 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 go. Um, Do you have that at all? Like, Especially having lost 10 years of your young life, Mm -hmm. if you like, in in a way, as far as living and experiencing the world or the good sides of the world, do you feel like that urgency at all to what the hell, you know, I've got so many years left, I've got to go, go, go? Less so, a lot less so now, in fact. And a a big shift for me was... uh, you know, getting married and having kids, which has become the most important thing for me in terms of, you know, what, again, what I'll look back and really measure my life by. But also as well, I did once conceive it as having lost that time. But now I actually, I, I don't, I, I, I wouldn't go back and replace those 10 years with something else. Wow. I think it gave me a really unique opportunity to have some experiences that have given me different insights about myself and different opportunities than I would have otherwise. You know, adversity is the catalyst of growth. Mm. And I do not believe that I would be where I am now to be in the position to have as satisfying and meaningful life as I do now without having gone through that extremely tough experience. You know, we always hear people talk about post-traumatic stress disorder and the risks around that when you experience trauma. Mm. But what we hear less talk about is the equally important to understand experience of post-traumatic growth. And this is what at least an equal number of people come out the other side with. Mm, So they experience trauma as equally challenging and difficult, as terrible at the time. But out the other end of it, they actually believe that they are better off for having the experience. And I believe I fall into that category. Yeah, me too. But we don't hear people talk (laughs) about that. And it's an important one to be aware of. It's it's the first person I've ever heard articulate that. I mean, we all talk about post-traumatic growth. I've got to remember that because we do talk about the fact that, you know, we learn from our failures and that our failures were important stepping stones to to who we are. But actually to see, yeah, that you can actually have benefited from the horrible experiences of life, um, I I think that that's a a fantastic insight. If if nothing else today, I'm going to take that away as being a... Yeah, post-traumatic growth as yeah. opposed to just post-traumatic stress. And, yeah, I mean, and that, yeah, you're changing who you are. Absolutely, and I think it's crucial for people who are going through tough times who might be listening to this to recognise that, you know, the people who experience post-traumatic growth who feel better off for the incredibly tough experiences they've had in life, they find those experiences as challenging, as difficult, as terrible why they're having them as anyone else. So if you are going through tough times, you know, recognize that it is 
highly likely that you will come out the other end of this and feel better off for it, even though it won't feel that way now. Yeah, and even though you wouldn't, might not want to actually repeat it <laughs> or experience <laughs> it again, if you can take the silver lining out of, out of silver lining out of every cloud that you've had in your life, I think that's a, a really good way to approach it, eh? So, yeah, absolutely. And you have a unique position too, Dr. Paul, to be able to – because because of your life history, you can talk to other young men, you know, you can you, – and you do this obviously in your job. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, no one can really argue with with you because, uh, you know, you, you've, you've – a young man coming to you, how do you get through to young men today – um, who have who are in that ig- well ignorant state of affairs, if you like? They've got that closed mindset that they think they know it all and they think this is the only way. How do you reach them and get them to start growing and, and maturing? Yeah, look, I, I think it's uh, it's a real challenge with young men. The reality is, is the part of the brain which is responsible for complex thinking, problem solving, evaluating consequences, impulse control, looking at the future. It's not fully developed in young men until they're about twenty five. So you're literally talking about a hardware issue in terms of, you know, <laughs> them making better decisions. Yeah. And I think one of the best things you can do is just simply try to be a positive influence and role model through your own behavior when it comes to those people and hope that, you know, again, that they just don't make choices prior to that full neurological development that lead them into places like I ended up. Yeah. But, you know, I re- I really do think that, you know, it's it's about your own behavior and making sure that your values aren't compromised by people who you care about. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if someone in your life is behaving in a way which conflicts with your values, that you don't enable that. It doesn't mean that you cut them off or that you don't provide the option of support from them, but you don't enable yourself to be compromised through the support of that behavior. So I think that that's a key component is, is actually being able to provide positive support and role modeling without actually enabling what people are up to if mm. they are causing themselves harm or risking harm to others. But look, it's a tough one. Yeah. It's a real tough one. There's no easy answer. No, you know, there's no, there's no quick, quick pill. <laughs> That's no, no, no way if, to make them grow was, up. You know, <laughs> no, and I think that's the key is that really you want to go for early intervention as much as possible. If there was one thing I could do, if I could wave the magic wand, it would be to introduce and really encourage greater levels of uh, education around emotional literacy, emotional intelligence for primary school age kids. Oh, I think you know, that would be so important, yeah. That emotional be, resilience. Resilience is something that we all need in spades. Absolutely. If we're going to yeah. survive this world, you know, it's a it can be a rough, rocky ride. And if you don't have that ability to stand up again when you get hit down, um, you know, look at all the suicide rates and so on. You know, the, that, that sort of thing that's going on in, in society at the moment is really bad. Um, yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of people hurting. So, you know, I, I, I want to thank you for openly sharing your story Um with me today because I think it's it's very very insightful. It's a side of the world that ninety five percent of us, thank goodness, don't ever get to experience. Um, and the way that you've turned your life around is incredible. It's mind blowing. Um, and you've obviously had some key people along in that process that have that have helped you. And now you're turning that around and helping tons and tons of other people. Um, 
Is there any sort of final words that you would like to share before we wrap up this interview? Um, for people that are going through hard times, whether it's young ladies or men or uh, older people, you know, what would be some of the key things that you would hold on to if you had like two or three things? But the first thing I would say is really focusing on, you know, what small things are in your control, what small things that you can do that will start to move you in that direction that you'd want to go and that not waiting for there to be some better circumstances in your life before you start taking those steps. But also recognizing that your experiences and your own ideas about yourself are not the things that need to define you, that at any point you can choose to actually be a better version of yourself. You can choose to step away from whatever challenges you've had and to become the author of your own destiny rather than just showing up as a character in someone else's script where you don't feel in control and you need to play some part you know, that others have for you, you can choose to do that at any point and the choice is yours. Oh. And also that ultimately we're only accountable for our own ha- actions and our own emotions and that those are the things that will get most value in focusing on. That's absolutely brilliant. I think that um, sums it up beautifully. I think there's a lot of uh, insights that people are going to take away from this interview today and um, it's been wonderful having you on the show. Thank you very much. wanted to let you guys know about my new Mindset Academy. It's called The Path of an Athlete and it's all about how to develop mental toughness, resilience, leadership skills, how to overcome those limiting beliefs, those self-doubts that we all have, and how you can achieve your dreams and fulfill your potential. So head on over to lisatamati.co.nz forward slash e-course to find out all about it and get involved. You've been listening to Pushing the Limits, brought to you by Running Hot Coaching, your online health and fitness coaching platform. For more information, visit us at www.runninghotcoaching.com.